Okay, well, believe it or not, we just have two weeks left in the book of Galatians. This is our 19th week of study in this New Testament letter. Uh, so next week we're going to be wrapping it up. And so this is an incredible, incredible book of the Bible to study. And we've talked as we began this study in the book of Galatians. This is one of the first letters written in the entire New Testament. When you think of the New Testament epistles, the, the letters written to the churches, this is one of the first ones written, and it's critical to our understanding of the gospel. Like if you want to understand the gospel in the way that, the, that God's word wants us to understand it, we need to really be able to wrap our minds around the practical teachings of, of books like the book of Galatians because we as religious people we are prone to certain errors. And so the, the book of Galatians, it, it attacks those errors. It rebukes them. It corrects us so that we can think rightly about God and who we are in relationship to him. So we really need this book of the Bible. If you are a new believer, you should especially stop what you're doing and study through the book of Galatians, and it can revolutionize how you think about God. It's, a, it's an incredible book of the Bible. We should all read it and take it personal and apply these truths to our lives. But in the section of the Galatians that we're in today, that we're continuing into today, in chapter 6, it's this really practical portion of the book of Galatians. There's all of this uh, all of these teachings that are talked about and false teachings and false teachers and, and, and then uh, a, a clarification of what the gospel is. And then when he gets to the end of the letter, he kind of shifts gears into this practical uh, instruction. And it's extremely practical. And, and it really makes sense that it would be at this portion of the letter because when you develop these beliefs that, the, that a book like Galatians promotes as we study this book, these beliefs have consequences. consequences. All beliefs have consequences, right? When you, when you believe something, it will result in, in a change in how you live. It will, it will alter your value system. So Paul, after teaching us all of this doctrine, he's like, okay, in light of all of this, here's how you should behave. Here's how you should live. Believing the gospel, as we've talked about in the past several weeks, it, it, it means there's a new you. And the new you isn't like the old you. And so when you believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, it changes how you see the world. It changes how you see people around you. It even changes how you see yourself. And so when you change all of those beliefs, how you interact with the world is going to be different. How you interact with those around you will be different. How you think about yourself and, and view yourself and interact with yourself, I think it's fair to say, that will even change. That's one of my favorite things, one of my favorite promises that's in the Bible. It's, it's a promise of change. I don't know if you're like me, but I'm a pretty pessimistic guy naturally. I'm, I, I, I joke all the time that I'm in like grumpy old man puberty, like I can feel getting, I get grumpier and grumpier as I go along. I get more pessimistic as time goes on. The more real-world experience I get, the more pessimistic I become about change in this world. Things will never change. The world will never change. People around me will never change. I'll never change. It'll all be the same old crap all the time the rest of my life. That's, that's, where, my, that's where my mind has a tendency to go. And I'm just being real with you right there. And when, I, when I'm talking, especially when I'm talking to you guys, I don't think I'm alone in that. 
So when I read in the Bible and I hear this promise of change and, and change for good, that's one of my favorite promises in the Bible. That's a promise that I need to hear and believe uh, because I don't want to believe that. But I, I'm so prone to, things, to think things will never change. And so here's how that promise smacks me on the hand and sets me straight. Right, when we get into Galatians chapter 5, what do we say? Hey, you want to see change in this world? Stop whining and start living by the Spirit. Live by the Spirit. We are people who live by the Spirit because we are God's people. And if you live by the Spirit, well, that's a pretty significant agent of change, is it not? The Spirit is God. The Holy Spirit is part of the Godhead, the Creator. I believe that the Holy Spirit can change things. It can change even me. That gives me hope. This is how books like Galatians smacks me on the hand and sets me straight. Hey, live by the Spirit. How do we, what do you mean live, live by the Spirit? Well, you're supposed to keep in step with the Spirit. Stop being pessimistic and getting lost in the, the brokenness of this world and start setting your minds on the things of the Spirit. Pro, have provisions for these changes in your life through the Spirit. And we are to do this in the most practical sense with and in and through the church. This is, this is, how, this is the agent of change that we need in our lives. That's why I said when, when we opened our service today, if you didn't want to be here today but you came here anyway, I'm so glad you did. That's the best thing possible for you to do. It's the best way possible to start off your week is to remember to set our minds on the things of the Spirit and to set our hope and the power of the Spirit in this world and in our lives. The new you in Christ, it is, it is a life in which we actively pursue holiness with one another. We're supposed to do this together. And so th this instruction that we're reading here as we get into the end of chapter 5 and the beginning of chapter 6, uh, it's, it's for us collectively. What did Paul say there at the end of chapter 5, verse 26? He said, okay, let's get real practical here, folks. Put down your ego. This isn't about you. If you want, if you want to do this right, you want to do church well, the first thing you need to understand is this is not about you. This is about God. This is about his church. Stop trying to be better than everybody else and understand that when you gather here, you're gathering with equals. They're sinners just like you, he says in the first verse of chapter 6. And so sinners just like you need help, just like you do. So if you want to do church, you're going to gather together with God's people, and you're going to help people with their problems. You're going to listen to them when they're going through a dark time in their life. You're going to be there for them. You're going to call them out whenever they sin in, a, in gentleness, in a way that, that they can hear in a way that will actually restore them and not kick them when they're down. That's what he says. It's so practical there at the beginning of verse 6. In verse 2 of chapter 6, when you want, to be, you want to do church well, it's about gathering with people who have burdens, just like you have burdens in your life. You know, a lot of the burdens that you and I carry around in our life aren't even because of our own sin. It's just because we live in this broken world. There's a lot of burdens in our life that have nothing to do with the fact that you're sinning. You're just, you just have to deal with it. You've got to deal with the sins of others around you, and you just got to deal with living in a, in a dark and sinful world. Well, I need help carrying those burdens, and so do you. And so God has gifted us. 
this gathering. He has gifted us as Christians across the world, the local church, to where we don't have to carry those burdens alone. We gently, gently restore one another, we carry one another's burdens, and we see each other as equals in here. See, church, life in the church doesn't work like life everywhere else where we're trying to, you know, uh, establish our superiority and success over each and every person on the planet. We're the church. We see each other as equals, and everybody is worthy of our time and acceptance and love, and we want to help them. We want to do church well. So he's, he's giving us these practical points of instruction so that you and I can know here are the consequences of these beliefs. Here's what these beliefs should look like and feel like. So when you gather together as the church at the journey, I hope you're scouting out people to love and serve because that's real church. I hope that you see everyone in this room as people that you should especially value, especially value. This is your opportunity to play a part in God's kingdom his church. You know, one of my biggest fears as a pastor is that I would create a gathering in which people just play church. You know what I mean? Like, I think it's so easy to provide a type of service that doesn't really impact your life, that doesn't really um, obey scripture. It just provides a way of thinking that you're participating as a Christian, but you're not really participating as a Christian. That's my biggest fear is that I would create some sort of machine that would crank out people that think they're believers and they're really not, that think they're doing church, but they're not actually doing church. They're not doing anything that the Bible prescribes as far as doing church. And so I don't want to ever convince somebody they're a Christian when they're not. And the only way I know to do that, to combat that biggest fear that I have as a pastor, is by constantly figuring out how to put truth before you. Just like we say each and every week, I want to present God's word to you in a way that's comprehensive and understanding and engaging and captivating. And, and this has to be a two-way street, right? You got to come here wanting that. I got to come here prepared to do that. And you got to come here wanting that. And if we do this together, this is where we can start to do real church and not fake church. Right? I want to, I want to keep pointing you back and uh, to God's word and helping you understand it and shepherd and, and, and counsel you with it because that's going to prevent all of us faking it. So today, as we continue in chapter 6, we're going to take verses 6 through 10. There's two more practical pieces of instruction here in the book of Galatians for us. Two more. The first one's kind of embarrassing to preach about. Uh, the second one's uh, awesome. I'm really excited to preach about it. The first one is you should support your pastor. <laughs> this is the kind of message I would normally never preach if it weren't just the next verse that uh, was, was on the docket here for the teaching series. You should support your pastor. And the second thing we're going to talk about is a passage of scripture that is the law of the harvest. And it makes perfect sense, right? You reap what you sow. You're going to reap what you sow in life. All right, so let's take that first one here. Just look at verse 6, chapter 6 of Galatians with me. It says, one who is taught the word must share all good things with the one who teaches. Support your pastors. 
This is this practical piece of instruction. It is addressed specifically to what? To who? The one who is taught the word. When you come to the journey, do you feel like you learn something when you come here? I desperately hope so, because that is literally, again, uh, as I've been trying to communicate to you since we began the service, this is how we have designed this service to work. It's to teach you. It's to remind you of, of God's word. One of my main desires as we gather together is that you would learn something from the Bible. The one who is taught, if you, if you look at that word taught in your Bible and you circled it and you're like, man, I'm going to look up the Greek word because I'm really going to nerd out on this and, and, and check out what's in there. It, it's katecheo, or it's, it's where we get our word catechism. You know that word that I say every single Sunday morning at the journey? We're going to read a catechism. That's the word taught. Because you come to church, hopefully, to be taught something. You want to learn something. And so a catechism is a series of questions and answers about those fundamental truths that every Christian should be taught. And so you want to be taught every time you show up to church. And specifically, that word taught, it means taught by oral instruction, by, informed by a word of mouth. It's preaching and teaching. It is very clear in the New Testament that when God's people gather together, we are to place a really high value on preaching and teaching. It's one of the most important things that we engage in as a body of believers, the word being taught. You want to be a spirit-led church? Every church would say that. Well, in the most practical sense, if you want to be a spirit-led church, you better be a church that is educating people on the Word of God, because that is the epitome of a spirit-led church, teaching that which is of the Spirit. And that's exactly what we see happening in the, in the early church. Whenever I'm talking the earliest church, when you're reading in the book of Acts, right? When we studied Acts together in this church service, we read Acts chapter 2. Whenever the Holy Spirit descended upon God's people, there was an explosion of the church. What activity does it say that they immediately engaged in? Did they say, oh, we don't need to be taught anymore. We have the Spirit. No, that's not what we see. When the Holy Spirit descended upon God's people, it says very specifically in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Nothing has changed since the early church. When we gather together as God's people, and we are to engage in spirit-led activity, the, the primary display of that spirit-led activity is by devoting ourselves to the teachings of the apostles. That's this. This is the apostle-approved teaching. This is it. So if we want to say we're a spirit-led church, we want to be catechized. We want to be taught. And that, that information that we teach, that is God's word the teachings of the apostles. And you, so you think about this book of Galatians and all the, the historical facts that we've sifted through. How important was it for the early church and, and, and these churches in the area of Galatia, how important was it for them to receive this apostle-approved material and be corrected by it? 
I mean, it's like the gospel would have been lost had this letter not been written. They were a group of churches that were beginning to neglect the teachings of the apostles. They were, they were wandering off into other teachers who weren't the apostles. That, that group of false teachers were teaching a false doctrine that, according to Paul, would nullify the work of Christ on the cross. If you embrace that false teaching, Paul says, it's as if there's no purpose to Christ dying on the cross at all. It doesn't matter. So you think how critical it was that they were taught in Galatia the teachings of the apostles specifically. That's what it means to be spirit-led. And so these these false teachers, Paul had a name for them, right? They were the Judaizers. They were people who wanted to say they were Christians, but didn't want to follow the teachings of the apostles. Oh, that's frustrating. They don't deserve that label as Christians if they're not going to follow the teachings of the apostles. The apostles are the apostles of Jesus. They, they carried on the teachings of Jesus in the most significant way possible with his authority, his commissioning. And so these Judaizers were people that say, no, we're Christians, but, but that information isn't important. Listen to what we have to say. So the same thing takes place in our day. The same exact thing takes place in our day. So we have to reject the people who reject the teachings of the apostles. And we have to accept and support the people who do promote the teachings of the apostles. So in the beginning of his letter, he's saying, reject this teaching and reject these Judaizers, these false teachers. So it makes sense then at the end of the letter, he would say, after clarifying the gospel, accept these guys. These are the guys preaching the apostle-approved material. Accept these guys and support them by all means possible. Support these guys. Share all good things with the one who teaches. So as believers in the local church, every single Christian should be a part of the local church, and every single Christian should uh, be participating in a way to support their local pastor, that is, the pastor of their church. You want to put your pastor in the best position possible to put food on the table, to, to survive in this world, right? I'm so grateful to be a part of a church who believes this. I can't tell you how thankful I am to be a part of the church that believes the pastor should be supported. You guys do support me so, so well. We're not perfect, I'm not perfect, but man, I got no complaints here. When we set out to launch this church in 2012, I had no idea what was around the corner for me. I just had this, what I feel like was a God-given vision to plant a church. And so Amanda and I, we did a fundraising campaign for about six months and just went for it. Stupid. (laughs) When I I counsel uh, young church planters today and talk to them, they have such better plans than I had. But I, I, I just had this... I don't know, I guess my story was just kind of this Geronimo-type story, and, and I, I, I was perfectly fine and falling flat on my face if that was what was around the corner for me. Maybe that was just part of God's plan. But we raised this support. We, were, we had $10,000 in the bank as a church and just went for it. I fully expected to work at Lowe's part-time or substitute teach part-time to make ends meet. That was the plan. Um, but I, here's all I knew. I had tunnel vision. I just wanted to be a part of a church 
that was focused on God's word, elevated his word, and was spirit-led through his word. I didn't want to be a part of a fancy church or emotionalism church or wacky belief church or political church or money-hungry church or entertainment church, social activism church, a self-righteous church. I didn't want to be the church that's just mimicking uh, one of these uh, big city celebrity pastor megachurches. I didn't want to be that guy. I was so sick of all that. I was exhausted by all of that. I just wanted to be a part of a church that would come together, centered around the Word of God, and do our best to be obedient to it, to be Spirit-led. And so I, I just wanted to preach and teach the Bible in a small town, in a small town way, and do small town church. And by God's grace, that's what we've been able to do. I, I never even had to work at Lowe's. <laughs> I never had to substitute teach. <laughs> Praise God uh, for that. You know, I just, I just wanted to be a pastor in a small town way. And the cool thing about that is we've never even passed the offering plate here a single time. Some of you have been here since the very beginning. We've never passed the offering plate a single time. Half the time I forget to even mention it. You're just generous, and you take care of your pastor. And I think practical obedience to that practical instruction in God's word, uh, we've, re we've reaped some practical benefits there that God has in place when you, when you obey his word like that. I mean, you want to put your pastor in a position to pastor. And so if you got your pastor, you know, struggling to make ends meet or working all these other jobs, they're not going to be able to provide the quality of shepherding that they would otherwise be able to provide. Right? I mean, writing these sermons takes time. Uh, it, it takes time to prepare. Whenever we gather together, this is after a week of sermon prep. I know that I'm not the best preacher in the world. I know that every sermon I preach is not top-notch and, and extremely captivating and perfect. I, I, understand all those, I understand all those things, but it's not for a lack of effort. I am put in a position in which I am given the time to prepare a sermon, to comb through the scriptures, to pray, to, to consider commentaries and theologians and scholars that know way more than I do. And I... I I use that time that I'm gifted in this role to craft something of significance for you, to do homework for you and present it before you, to help you and to benefit you. And so this is a symbiotic relationship that God has established. A pastor takes care of the people who gather locally to worship him, and the people who gather locally to worship him, they benefit and support and help the pastor in his life too. This is a, a mutually beneficial relationship. And so Paul is, is teaching here, put your pastor in the best position possible to pray and to prepare and to teach. Just like all of you are paid to your, do your job, you're given time and compensation to do that job well. You know, I routinely meet with pastors. I meet with pastors uh, statewide, and I meet with pastors even locally in the local communities and things like that at a monthly luncheon. And so I talk to a lot of pastors. And so I hear a lot of different stories from a lot of different pastors in a lot of different churches. And I, I, one, of the, one of the routine questions, we, we, when, when a bunch of pastors get together, we talk about preaching and teaching. And we talk about sermon prep. 
We're trying to, you know, get ideas from one another and, 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 you know, iron sharpens iron type conversations. How do you prep? What are you reading? What books are out there? What have you engaged with lately? And, and, and we're swapping resources and talking to each other. Every, every group of pastors that I meet with, that tends to be the type of conversation that, we're happen, that, 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 that happens because we want to help each other. And one of the things that I find when it comes to, like, sermon prep, so many of these pastors are at a disadvantage because their churches don't support them and protect them in a way that they would have the time to prepare quality sermons. I was with a, a group of pastors just recently, and I just said, hey, what does your prepping routine look like? And more than half of them said, Saturday night, man. Now, some of those guys may be procrastinating. <laughs> like, I don't, I don't want to, like, uh, totally throw their churches under the bus. Maybe they're procrastinating some. But a, a lot of those guys, their churches are programmed in such a way, and they have so many demands on their pastor, he doesn't have time to prep a sermon. He's running around ragged. He's running around trying to do so many other things in the church that need done. He doesn't have time to comb through commentaries. He doesn't have time to spend hours praying and reading through Scripture and thinking about what he's going to say on a Sunday morning. And so it's like Saturday night's here. Man, I was doing all these other things throughout the week, and now Saturday night's here. Now I've got to prep this sermon. There's one pastor I know. He says he preps his sermon every Sunday morning. I would be a nervous wreck <laughs> if I did that. I just couldn't possibly even function up here if, if I did it that way. I just wouldn't even be a pastor if I had to function like that. But their, their churches don't put them in a position to do that. Yet when you look in the early church, when you look in the book of Acts, what do we see? What do we see happen right out the gate? Immediately in the book of Acts, the early church, they create two offices in the church. We have the office of elder or pastor. They are the teachers and preachers of God's word. They are to educate God's people. That, that was like the most important component and office to put in place to benefit the church, to shepherd and counsel and teach God's people. And then they immediately started a second office in the church, the office of deacon. It means servant. And the whole reason they did that was so that the elders and the pastors of the church wouldn't get so bogged down by the service elements of the local gathering of the church that they didn't have time to preach and prepare and teach and pray and counsel and shepherd people. So those deacons were put in place so the church would serve well regionally and locally in their community, but not in the way that says the pastor has to be doing all of these things. And so a lot of churches today, that, that's, how they, that's exactly how they function. They get mad when they're pastor isn't doing all of these things for them, and I think it's because they like to live their faith vicariously through their pastor. As long as they go to a church or attend a church in which their pastor is doing all of these things, it makes them feel like they are doing all of those things, and so therefore they enjoy that service uh, that the pastor provides them. And then they complain that his sermons aren't that relevant or helpful. <laughs> you know, it's just not engaging, and he doesn't really know what he's talking about when he gets up there. Well, probably not. He's doing all of your work, right? That doesn't mean an elder doesn't do the things that a deacon does. He certainly does. He's in the trenches, digging the ditch with every deacon and church member, just like everybody else. But as the local church, you want to protect that guy. You want to support that guy. Make sure he's, his prep time is protected. It's respected. Make sure his, 
his uh, you know, shepherding time is, is protected. We don't want to waste the pastor's time. We want to put him in a position to teach us, to catechize God's people. That's what he's there for. That's the primary purpose of a teaching elder. So all of these practical points of instruction that we're reading in the book of Galatians, again, they have very practical consequences. If you, if you do church the way that God prescribes in Scripture, you're going to reap the benefits that he wants to provide you with that prescription. Or you can ignore how God says to do church, and you can have church your way. You can make church about anything you want. You want to do the prosperity gospel church, do it. You want to do the church that takes their cues from all the local prophet and prophetesses. You want to do that kind of wacky church. You're free. This is America, man. You can do church any way you want. But don't complain whenever you start reaping things uh, that you didn't want to reap. Beliefs have consequences. And so we want to practice the Christian faith according to the way God tells us to practice this Christian faith. We want to have the value system that he has in place for us in Scripture. We want to have these offices in place, and we want to function the way God tells us to function because of the law of the harvest, right? You're going to reap what you sow. So God's just telling you straight up, here's, here's what you need to be sowing so that you can reap the right things and not the wrong things. Look at verses 7 through 10 with me. This is the law of great return or the law of the harvest. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows his own flesh will reap or will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. You're going to reap what you sow. This is such a universally understood illustration, right? It doesn't matter where you live on the planet, what you do, what culture you come from. This illustration makes perfect sense because everybody understands generally how farming works or gardening works, right? You reap what you sow. So we can draw a lot of sanctified conclusions from this really simple illustration. Whatever you plant, that is what you will grow. I don't think we should have any big epiphany there, right? <laughs> that makes perfect sense. If I plant corn, I don't expect to reap potatoes. That would not make any sense, right? If I plant corn, I'm going to expect to reap corn. right? So if I invest in the church and in church life in the ways that are not prescribed in Scripture, I shouldn't be surprised when I start reaping all these things that God doesn't want me to reap. He says, God is not mocked. He's not going to be mocked. You're not going to get to do church any way that you want and get the results that God wants you to get. He's not going to be mocked. You're not going to use him. You know, whatever you set out to find, that's what, whatever you go looking for, that's what you're going to find. That's another way to say it, right? So, I mean, if you go looking for that self-help or self-care church or pop psychology church, you're going to find that. If that's what you're looking for, that's what you're going to find, and that's what you're going to get. Now, self-help and self-care is pop psychology. It's not all bad. But that's not, that's not what God's people are after, ultimately. I like to utilize some of those things and, and, 
and contemplate, meditate upon some of those things. Some of those things are good. But I'm after God help and God care and God psychology. That's ultimately what we are to be after when we gather as the local church, right? And so if we're after that, that's what we're going to find. If that's what we go looking for, that's what we're going to find. If I go looking for a, a body of believers to invest in and, and, and start engaging people intentionally in a way that would you know, understand what they're going through, that's what I'm going to find. That's what I'm going to get. But if I don't do that, I'm not going to get that. Well, I've just never felt accepted at a church. Well, I've just never really you know, felt like a part of a church family. Well, have you ever participated in a church like family? You reap what you sow. You know, there's so many Christians here today uh, in, our, in our culture, I think, and especially after the pandemic, that they stay home on a Sunday morning. They got used to doing that during the pandemic, and so they stay home on a Sunday morning, and they only watch church online, right? And, and what are you going to do? Well, you're going to find the best production possible. You're going to go to one of these mega churches and uh, one of the best communicators possible, and, and you're going to go, and you're going to, and they, they stay in their pajamas, and they watch these sermons online, and, 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 they're, and they're amazing, man. There's so many great communicators out there, and, and what they do is they think, man, that church is so great. Boy, I wish we had a church like that in small town USA, and then they start looking around churches in small town USA like, man, these churches are all crummy, and they complain about the local church, so they give all of their time and their money to this church far away, like in Chicago or something, and then they complain about the local church and how Christians aren't getting it done in their own backyard. Well, you reap what you sow. You reap what you sow. You're not helping the local church. You're not participating in the local church. You're not giving to the local church. If nobody gives to the local church, the local church is going to be struggling. Duh. You reap what you sow. The law of the harvest is so simple. And it's so convicting when we analyze our lives through that lens. Something else that we need to take away from that really simple illustration of you reap what you sow is that this never happens overnight. You never reap what you sow overnight. You don't go into your garden, plant your garden one day, and then stare at it until things grow. That's not how that works, right? You go out the next day and you're like, oh man, there's still no fruit. This is not fun. No, you got to go out there and then weeks later, what's grown in my garden? Weeds so far. And then you go out there, and if you want your garden to be worth anything, you got to start working that garden and pulling those weeds and taking care of it. And it seems like forever before you get any fruit, right? And then sometimes once you finally get those fruits and veggies, it's a terrible harvest. It's not what you imagined. It's not what you hoped for. Some harvests are better than others. I, I remember I had a lot of peppers in my garden this year, and, and they were all terrible. <laughs> so I talked to somebody else who was a good gardener, and he says, oh, this is a terrible year for, year for pep peppers. This is a terrible year. If you grew peppers, they're all terrible. I'm like, that doesn't even make sense to me. <laughs> like, I don't even know how that's true, but like everybody's peppers were bad. I don't know. I just know mine were. All that work. My garden was terrible. I think that's something we need to take in to our practice of the Christian faith, especially in the local church. Sometimes it just feels like you labor and labor and labor, and you try, you try to do this right. You try to invest in the church, but you don't get the, the, the product that you were hoping for and the timing that you were hoping for, and you start to get discouraged. And because you're not getting what you want, you're tempted to just to give up on that. 
Just to throw that idea out the window. I tried church, but it's not working, right? I, I mentioned that last week. People don't get the immediate results they're looking for. That's not the frame of mind we are supposed to have as Christians. Looks like the book of Galatians teaches us. You need to have a different set of mind. You need to be patient and consistent and obedient in this life and in this practice of the Christian faith. Don't sow to the flesh, right? And harvest things of the flesh. Sow, sow to the Spirit and trust God. Regardless of when that harvest comes or what that harvest looks like, just do what you're instructed to do. Sow to the Spirit. And as you do that, as God has commanded us to do that, we trust that he's going to provide the right harvest at the right time. And so when it doesn't feel good, we come to church and we do it anyway. When we're not feeling it, we open up God's word and we study it anyway. When we don't want to pray, we get on our knees and we pray anyway. Because we're trusting in God's timing, his sovereignty, his faithfulness, his goodness. And we're not going to weary of doing good. We're not going to look at that harvest. Who am I to complain? How could I ever look to God and complain? You didn't give me what I want, God. I, try, I tried to be a Christian the best way I knew how, and it didn't work out in the way that I wanted it to. Shame on you, God. How could I ever take that posture towards God? That's not, about, that's, that's not a faith that's about him. That's a faith that's about me. We have a reason for contentment in this obedience that we're called to live, this holiness that we're called to live out. We have a reason for it. We're going to reap eternal life when we sow to the Spirit. That's reason to be patient. And so that's reason to do good to everyone that's around us. We want to do good to everyone in this world, whether they're Christians or not, but we especially want to do good to the people who are Christians. There's a priority level to the way that we serve. There's a priority level to the way that we give and the way that we are generous. God's family is first. Well, you, do this, you do this in your own family. This makes perfect sense. This isn't selfishness as Christians. When you raise your family, right, you, your kids, I'm going to take care of my kids first because they're my responsibility. Then I may help to take care of somebody else's kids. I'm going to make sure my kids got shoes and, and, and stuff, and then, and then I'm going to make sure other kids got sho shoes too. That's the way that that works, right? I mean, that's just the natural way that that works. We are to think about the family of God in that way. I have a responsibility to you, specifically you, the local gathered church here. And you have a responsibility, especially to each other. This church, Christians first. I want to make sure my family is taken care of so we can take care of other families. We got to make sure that we have what we need so that we can make sure everyone else has what they need and we can practically serve this world in a significant way that would point them back to Christ. This is set up that way on purpose, on purpose so that we can benefit the world in the most effective way possible. If we put Christians first, we will serve everyone around us in this world. And we'll do it in a greater way because the church is the means by which this gospel is taken into this world 
And it's the means by which people hear the gospel and are saved and are provided for in the most significant way imaginable. Eternal life and eternal inheritance with our creator. These are the practical things that Paul says, if you believe the gospel, this is how you think. This is how you live. We do this all for his kingdom and the advancement of it. Let's pray. Father, again, we thank you for how practical your word is. It's so easy to overlook these things. It's so easy, Lord, as we try to understand the Christian faith and understand churches, Lord, with all the diversity that's out there, it becomes overwhelming and confusing and convoluted and hard to follow. And Lord, we have your word to center on to get back in order. Lord, we have your word to sort through the chaos. Lord, we're, we're thankful for the, your teaching. We're, we're thank you, we, we thank you for the, the teachings of your apostles that instruct us on right doctrine, on right living. We, we need taught these things, Lord. So I just ask that as we gather together, we collectively, all of us, would submit to these things. Father, as we go into a time of communion, help us to reprioritize our thoughts, our hearts, our minds, our strength, all upon what matters most. You sent your Son to save us. Father, help us to worship you in this time and to, and to find peace in that truth. And it's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Mm-hmm.